Good morning, and we welcome you to Bible study as we continue our study of 1 Corinthians, and we extend a special welcome to our listening audience on KFUO. Today we're going to start chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. Chapter 15 is a treasure because all of chapter 15 talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's referred to as the great resurrection chapter. Now, it's it's divided into three parts. Uh, 1 to 11 kind of rehearses the gospel and the resurrection um, as the content of what we preach. Verses 12 through 34, Paul actually refutes the arguments of those that say there is no resurrection of the dead. And then, verses 35 to the end of the chapter, talks about the resurrected body. Okay? What is the resurrected body? So we're not even going to come close to finishing this in one week. Uh, So we'll be spending two, maybe three weeks on this chapter. So if you'll turn to chapter 15, 1. And, you know, it's, it's hard to believe, but evidently there were some in Corinth that were arguing there is no resurrection of the dead. Otherwise, he would not have written this extensively on it. Who they were, or why they would argue such a thing, we don't know. But there must have been some. Now, certainly in a a, a religiously diverse city like Corinth, there were other religions that would deny a resurrection of the dead. But this, he's actually writing to the church in Corinth. So evidently there were some, even within the church, who thought there is no resurrection of the dead. So this first part, we'll go through. He's talking about the gospel. I remind you, or I made known to you, brothers, the gospel which I preached to you which also you received, in which you also stand firm, okay? Through which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the words I, to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. Okay, so several things here. He preaches the gospel. They received it. Okay, they received the message. They stand firm in it. It is what is saving them. If they hold on to it and do not believe in vain. All right. So a lot of verbs there uh, of what the gospel has accomplished. But then he talks about the content of this gospel. For I handed or delivered over to you as first. All right. The word that he's using here about handing over and delivering it is the delivering of important things. This word is used about delivering the things of the Old Testament to the people. But then he adds this. It's of first importance. Above and beyond anything else, this is of first importance. 
because ultimately the entire Christian faith rests on the resurrection. It does not rest on Jesus Christ dying on the cross. Because lots of guys died on crosses in the Roman world. If Jesus Christ dies on the cross and is not resurrected, we have no faith. We have nothing. The resurrection is of first importance. Okay? And that's what he says. And then he rehearses the content of the gospel. I delivered to you as of first importance that which I received. Where did he receive it? Well, the risen Christ appeared to him. He was in Jerusalem a number of times and talked with the apostles. So he had firsthand information that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, it's very important there. Uh, the preposition there that is used is a preposition that is used throughout the, the uh, New Testament, and it always signals that this is what someone did for somebody else. It marks it as substitutionary. Yeah, who pair? Yeah, who pair? Substitutionary. Somebody did this for somebody. And that's a major teaching of the Christian faith, that Jesus Christ was our substitute, did what we could not do, Okay. did what we could not do in our behalf, for us. And of course, he died for our sins. Sin brings death. He took the death upon himself and died in our behalf. Okay? For our sins according to the scriptures. Now, what's he citing? I, we've talked about this before. At this point, there is no New Testament. It doesn't exist. If you really want to point to what he's probably talking about, it's probably Isaiah 53. Because Isaiah 53 so carefully details what Christ did on the cross of Calvary that that's got to be prevalent in his mind, okay? So according to the scriptures, and his emphasis right there is, this is not new. God told us he was going to do this. He kept his promise. He kept his promise. So that's the first part, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and he was buried, okay, and he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Now, there's a change in verbs here, and it's important. He died. That's one kind of verb. He was buried. That's another kind of verb. Okay. But he was raised, changed the tense. It's a perfect tense. And the perfect tense always says, always means to tell us it happened and it has all kinds of future implications all kinds of future implications. Now imagine 
How many future implications are there that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? You couldn't list them all. And they're all blessings that we receive. So the simple little verb tense tells us the resurrection means everything. Because there are implications forever. Multiple implications forever for each and every believer. Okay? For each and every believer. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Okay? Again, God is keeping his promises. Keeping his promises. And then he appeared to Cephas and also to the twelve. Okay? And of course, we have those accounts where he came to them in the room where they were, even though the door was locked for fear of the Jews, and there he was. And he came the next week when Thomas was there, okay? He appeared on the seashore. Uh, he appeared to the twelve. Now, this is very important because the Old Testament says that everything has to be attested by two or three witnesses. So that's why Paul is making such a emphasis of this, it is attested by two or three witnesses. He even goes farther, okay? So Cephas and the twelve, okay? Then uh, he appeared to over 500 brothers at once, uh, some of whom remain with us, or remain, and others have fallen asleep, have died. Uh, that, that is, the reference to fallen asleep is a euphemism for death, okay? So ultimately, he says, he actually appeared to over 500 people. And of course, Jesus was uh, appearing for a 40-day period before he ascended into heaven. And so we don't have all the accounts of everyone he appeared to in the New Testament. We have some of them, but there were obviously others. So the emphasis here is, Paul is saying, this is attested to over 500 people. This is not just the disciples making up a story and they stole the body and they're just making up a story and they're the only ones that attest to it. It's over 500 people attest to this. And that's why he's emphasizing that. Because that's what the law said. It had to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. So Cephas, the 12... Um, and then over 500 people, okay? And then he throws in himself. Well, next he says he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared to me as one untimely born. Untimely born. What does that mean? It was always, or it's always been, the, the, the definition of an apostle that you were with Jesus from the time of his calling you throughout his earthly life until the time he ascended into heaven. Those that were with him this entire time were called the twelve, the apostles. Now Paul is going to call himself an apostle. But what does he mean by untimely born? Untimely born. 
it means I didn't go through all that. I didn't go through three years of ministry with Jesus Christ. I was untimely born. It happened on the road to Damascus. Okay? I didn't go through the three years. And that's why he says I'm the least of the apostles because he didn't go through three-year training period. Okay? So he calls himself one untimely born. Okay? Untimely born. And then he says, For I am not, I am the least of the apostles, and I am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Okay? He calls himself an apostle, but he says he's the least because the others did not persecute the church as he did. So he was the chief persecutor of the church. And now as one untimely born, he is another apostle. Okay? Another apostle. So we don't see any pride here. But he is saying that the risen Lord appeared to him. I mean, he appeared to 500 other people, but he did appear to Paul on that road to Damascus. And then he says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace... Uh, in me was not in vain. But I worked harder than all of them. Okay. So I am what I am by the grace of God. It is the grace of God that brought him, that Jesus Christ chose to come to him and call him to be a a uh, uh, one to take the gospel to the Gentiles. I am what I am only by the grace of God. His grace was not in vain. I did not turn my back on it. Uh, Paul did not, but in, in spite, he worked. Um, he worked harder than the others. Now, what's he saying here? Actually, the verb here means, I grow weary working. I grow weary working. Okay. I work myself to death. I work myself to death. That's what he's saying. And, but it is not I, but the grace of God that's with me. So whether I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Okay, so I, I told you that the first 11 verses were kind of a summary of the gospel and the, go the content of the gospel preaching. And he ends by saying he appeared to all these people. So whether they're preaching it or I'm preaching it, this is the content of what we preach, and this is the content of what you believe. That first and foremost, Christ died for your sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel. Okay. And whether it be those others, the other apostles, or him, doesn't matter because that's what we preach. And that's what you believe. So, to start the chapter, he gives a summary of the gospel content. 
Sometimes you'll hear it referred to as the kerygma, okay, the content of the gospel. Now, okay, let me stop there. Questions, bud? I noticed at the end there that the preaching comes from God and this is just us talking. That's right. It's from the grace of God. Uh, it is the grace of God that the gospel is preached to the world and God sees to that. You know, we talk about Jesus as being prophet, priest, and king. His prophetic office is that he sees to it that the gospel will be preached until he comes again. And it's a gift of the grace of God. It's a gift of the grace of God because your patience and my patience would have worn out with this world a long time ago. But God is very patient. He's waiting for the sum of all the people who will believe to come into the fold. And so he just sees to it that the gospel is preached. The gospel is preached. Yes. Well, see, that's always the discussion. We always talk about the fact that um, Paul had these years where we don't know what was happening. And it's always assumed that after Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, all he knew was the bare minimum to become the great proponent of the gospel. He had to learn more. So when did he learn it? Our guess is during those years, God was preparing him for his mission. But that's speculation on our part. Speculation. Yes. No women are mentioned. Well, um, I, I'm not sure. They're certainly in the 500. They were the witnesses of the resurrection. They were the witnesses of the resurrection. So, they are not being maligned, but it's just saying people. Okay. Yeah. There are other places in the Old Testament. Probably the biggest is when we get into God's promise to David that someone will sit on his throne forever. Well, the only way that happens is one of them is God, okay, the Son of God. So there are other places we can look to find that. Yeah, but Isaiah 53 talks about basically his substitutionary atonement. All right, anything else? Okay, now Paul is going to begin to deal with the actual questions that are being raised. The actual arguments, okay? Okay. If Christ is preached that he was raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So he's, he's really addressing, he's not addressing outside religions, or, or, or he's addressing people that are in the Corinthian church that are saying there is no resurrection of the dead. So if he's being preached that way by all these people, by the apostles, by, by me, by 500 people that he appeared to, why are some of you saying there is no resurrection of the dead? 
And so he goes on with the arguments. If there is no resurrection of the dead, Christ was not raised. Okay? If Christ was not raised, is not raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And the word that's used there is for the preaching content is perigma. Okay? In other words, what I just told you was of first importance is worthless. The fact that Jesus died for your sins, was buried, and rose again is now a worthless preaching. It's worthless. And because the preaching is worthless and the content of the preaching is worthless, your faith is worthless. You see, as we said before, it all hinges on the resurrection. All hinges on the resurrection. So, all the preaching is vain, and all the faith is vain. But then he goes farther. He says, and we are found making a false witness of God. Making a false witness of God. That's what he's saying. Because, and why? We have been found to be misrepresenting a false witness of God because we say God raised him from the dead. We are testifying to the world that God raised him from the dead. Whom if he didn't raise from the dead, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So we are preaching to the world that God raised Jesus from the dead, which is false if there is no resurrection of the dead. False witnesses about God, about God himself. Okay? So he's trying to argue the absurdity of this argument. It's absurd to think he hasn't risen from the dead. And if it is, we're bearing false witness against God. Okay. The content is worth nothing, the faith is worth nothing, and we are false witnesses against God. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised. And here's the other implication. If Christ is not raised, your faith is vain. In fact, the word could actually mean godless and you are still in your sins. Now, so in other words, there is no salvation. No salvation. No one is saved by Jesus Christ if Jesus Christ is not raised. So he's drawing all the arguments to show them how absurd this is. Uh, you know, maybe the people then were thinking that since their sins were forgiven, uh, they had all they needed. That's as far as it needed to go. Because a lot of the religions that surrounded them in Corinth do not believe in afterlife. When you die, 
you're kind of a shadow and you go over to the bank of the river Styx and you're just a goner. So now he gets to him and he says, okay, you think you got it all because you have the forgiveness of sins. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, you don't have the forgiveness of sins. You don't have it. It's not yours. It's not yours. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ are destroyed. In other words, this not only applies to you, but it applies to all that have died before you. All your friends, relatives, everybody, there's no life after death. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, then we of all men are to be pitied. If we just believe that Jesus Christ died and that's the end of the story, and we put our faith in him that he died, then we are of all people in this world most to be pitied because we are just chasing after nothing. Chasing after nothing. So he takes all these arguments that they would make and just basically crushes them. Because if Christ did not rise from the dead, there is no hope no forgiveness, no life, no nothing. And so this is his first section where he chases after this notion that Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead. Questions? Yes? of all the other religions in the world, this issue of Christ being raised is unique. I mean, what's the argument here? If Christ is raised, Christianity is the religion. If he's not raised, well, forget it. That's right. You see, all the religions in the world but Christianity teach salvation by works. Every one of them. Only Christianity teaches that it is through Christ alone. And of course, his resurrection. So that all other religions are false. All other religions are false. And this notion that there's lots of ways to God up the mountain is laughable. The only way to God is through his son, Jesus Christ. And without Christ, there is no access to God. So he goes on, verse 20. Now Christ was raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits means he is the first to conquer death. Now other people were raised from the dead, but they did not conquer death itself. They did not conquer death itself. So he's the first fruits 
of all those who have fallen asleep. And then he starts another argument. For since, and I'll just translate it literally for you. For since, through man, death, and through man, resurrection of the dead. Okay, what's he talking about? Adam? Jesus. And of course, he really fleshes this out in Romans chapter 5. We've, we've been through that. So he reiterates it. By one came death, by one came resurrection of the death. For so in Adam all die, as also in Christ all will be made alive. Okay? So, um, this is why Jesus is called the second Adam. Okay? The first Adam made a mess of things. So God sent a second Adam who did things the way it was supposed to be. Okay? So Jesus Christ is the second Adam. And he doesn't bring death. He brings life. Life. Each in his own order. Christ, the first fruit, then those belonging to Christ at his coming. Okay. So, there's an order to this. Then the end. When he gives the kingdom to God and Father. Okay. When ever all rule and authority and power is brought to nothing. Okay, so now he's talking about the end. What happens is that Jesus Christ, as the one who rose from the dead, there will be a resurrection. Now, technically, uh, if you read your catechism, everyone is raised. Everyone is raised. The good and the evil. You're raised to eternal life, or you're raised to go to hell. But everybody is raised. Okay? So that's what it's saying here. So what happens is, ultimately, when the end comes, the kingdom is given to God the Father by his Son. He delivers it to him. And at the same time, all earthly rule and authority and power comes to an end. It comes to an end. That's over. That's over. And then he says, um, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. When Jesus Christ comes again in glory and they are raised to eternal life, they are raised and to eternal punishment. Death will be no more. Nobody else is going to die. Death will not be a part of the new heaven and the new earth. It will not be a part of God's new creation, paradise. There will be absolutely no death. You cannot die. Okay? 
because death will be done away with. Once for all. Gone. Absolutely gone. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. In other words, he puts all things in subjection to him under his feet, but that doesn't include the one that made him subject in the first place. Okay, And we're distinguishing here between God the Father and God the Son. God the Son. Now that brings up an interesting doctrinal point that we confess in the Athanasian Creed. And I know you all know that by memory and can recite it. But in that creed, it says something very important. That the Son is in to the Father according to his human nature, but is equal to the Father in his divine nature. So Jesus Christ, in the fact that he actually became man, is inferior to the Godhead according to his human nature. But according to his divine nature, he is equal with God. Okay? Go home and ponder that for a while. Okay, so when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Okay? And that's when all the promises have been filled, when everything is now as God wants it for all eternity. And there's not going to be any powers or any authorities or any rulers that are above God. All things are subject to his feet. All things are subject. So, um, that's his second paragraph of arguments. Now, he's got, he's got more, okay? There's one more paragraph. We're not going to get into that this week. But um, he's trying to, to, to get the folks to realize they've got nothing without Christ's resurrection. Nothing. But look at what they do have with his resurrection. And that is the fulfillment of all God's promises. The fulfillment of all God's promises. Which ends with the people of God in heaven, with him, forever. No more death, no more evil, forever. It's done. It's done. Okay, any final questions or thoughts? Yes, Tom? Oh, yes. Okay, that, is, that will be the end of evil. You see, that creation has been destroyed by sin. Okay? And this sin permeates each and every human being, all institutions, everything on this planet. Now, what did God do? God decided he was going to save us. 
Okay? And so he sent Jesus Christ to be our Savior. Now, he then sees to it that this message is preached to the world. But there are many, many that reject it. If we look carefully at Revelation, we see that when Satan was thrown out of heaven in chapter 12, it specifically says, woe to the earth, because he has now come down to try to tempt us. God has sent us a savior. But God has also made promises and part of it is just because you believe in Jesus everything's not all right in your life. Evil is still going to touch your life as long as you're in this world. And God is not going to put an end to all evil until the day he has appointed for his son to come again. Could he slaughter us all? Put an end to all of us in a sack like that? But he doesn't. Just like when Jesus Christ was on the cross of Calvary and was taunted and mocked. And they said, if you're the Christ, come down from the cross. Could he have? Yes. But then our salvation would have been incomplete. There would have been no salvation. What is the mind of God that he is letting this evil continue? And the only thing that we can come up with is he's waiting for more people to believe. And he's very patient. Now, his patience will run out at some point. But he is waiting for more people to hear the gospel. And so, isn't it a magnificent thing that the one who has all power is willing to not use it so that one more soul gets to heaven? Remarkable. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.